Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Kol Hadash is a humanistic Jewish congregation located in Chicago's North Shore suburb of Highland Park. The following episode is a recording of Rabbi Shalom's 5778 Yom Kippur morning sermon recorded on September 30th, 2017, entitled, We're Number One. For more information about Rabbi Shalom, Kol Hadash, and Humanistic Judaism, visit kolhadash.com. When we remove our Torah scroll from our heart, why do I invite everyone to stand? There are many Torah passages that are objectionable to modern values. We heard one last night, where Pentecost the priest kills an Israelite and his Midianite brother for violating the holy space and for crossing ethnic boundaries. Death penalties for blasphemy, for same-sex relations, for gathering sticks on the Sabbath, if someone proposed these as laws in Illinois, we would not stand for them. Yet we do stand for them. The reason I invite you to stand is because for us, the Torah symbolizes the beginning of Jewish wisdom, even if we have moved beyond that beginning. The original Constitution accepted slavery, and most states allowed only white men with property to vote. But we can still represent from the Constitution respect what the Constitution represents. The reason I invite you, rather than tell you, is that for you, the negative may outweigh the positive. So if a group stands for a shared symbol, and you choose to stay seated, or to take a knee, that is always your choice and your right. Because the group is not always right, and you are always you. Groups Communities, tribes are defined by languages, by symbols. Do you understand the in jokes? Do you celebrate what we celebrate and reject what we reject? Do we boo the same villains and cheer the same heroes? Woe be to those who reject the symbols, who challenge the group's authority, who break the boundaries and are willing to see the other side. Woe to those who once in a while are able to admit that maybe we are not always number one. This high holidays, we have imagined how language can change the world. The very beginning of the Jewish creation proclaims the power of language. God says, let there be, and there is. Adam names the creatures as a sign of his rule. The snake's words start humanity down the road to knowledge and death. What would happen, we have asked, if we refuse to accept concepts like post-truth, Judaism says, or bad Jew. Today, as we turn the corner towards the close of Yom Kippur and the real beginning of our new year, we face the challenge at the heart of any we, the temptation to proclaim we're number one. Are the Olympics about the nobility of athletic competition or about tribal bragging rights, the chance to chant USA. For if we are number one, are others lower, lesser, even losers? <laughs> if the only way to feel good about ourselves is to make others feel worse, then we better not to play the game at all. I once wrote about how sports and religion are intertwined, and not just because of the athlete's religiosity or the obligatory news stories about churches praying for another man. 
There are two sides to the question. First, has sports become a religion? Sports has their shrines and their methods, and devotees make regular pilgrimage. There are tea rituals and curses, and even occasional exorcisms. Remember blowing up the Barkley ball? That was an exorcism, and some argue it worked. <laughs> Players and fans are superstitious, thanking God for their successes, but almost never blaming God for their failures, just like in religion. Fans watching games thousands of miles away yell at the screen as if their words would be heard and the ball would be dropped or caught or hit in a hole. When else do people send words out into the universe and hope they have a positive impact? And the heretics who do not sing, who do not uncover their heads, do not place their hand on their hearts for the collective ritual. The best players seek immortality in the pantheon the word Theos, God, of a Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame collects the holy relics stained by the sweat and the blood of the martyrs. Before last year, the connection was even stronger between Judaism and Chicago Cubs fans, both with many years of suffering and longing. <laughs> but I think that we will find that Cubs fans, like Jews after reclaiming their promised land, will have a similar response. What can we complain about now? <laughs> Simply transition from the chosen people to the choosy people. <laughs> you could look at it the other way. Is religion a sport? Participating in a religious community makes you feel like you are on an important team, wearing special clothing to feel part of the group. If you believe you are the elect, the saving remnant, the chosen people, is that another version of chanting, we are number one? Two fans of the same team wearing paraphernalia smile at each other as they cross paths, just as two cross-wearing Christians or two people wearing Jews might do. The collective feeling in an arena parallels that in a megachurch. 10,000 people rooting for the same thing, sharing the same goals. In fact, Joe Olasky's megachurch used to be the home of the NBA's Houston Rockets. And the best clergy are those who perform at the biggest events. High holidays are a big prime time, as Easter and Christmas are the Christian Super Bowl. It's calling Tikiya for the show far that different from play ball. <laughs> the truth is that religion is not a sport, and sport is not a religion. They are similar because both sports and religion, and patriotism for that matter, are group activities. They are tribes, and human tribalism is very deeply rooted in our evolution. Our first several thousand years as homo sapiens were in small and most homogeneous groups. Group loyalty and fear of the outsider are much more natural than the relatively new idea of universal humanity. In theory, groups can respect differences, learn from each other, create alliances, find ways to live and be productive together. And that has happened from time to time. As we know all too well, groups can also insist on absolute loyalty and the denigration of other groups. Keep in mind a simple equation. We are number one equals we are supreme equals supremacists. We know the violent extremes supremacists can reach when trying to put the lesser, quote, in their place. 
we do sit down on the receiving end of, we are number one in who are not on the economy. Sometimes the very key emblem was to mark you as different. The yellow star was part of a long history of marking Jews as different, other, and lesser. To be fair, we Jews have also said that we are number one, even if historically we lack the power to act on. Traditional Judaism repeatedly and strongly claims that Jews are the chosen people. For example, from Deuteronomy chapter 26. God has declared today that you are a people for his own possession, as he has promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. He will make you high above all nations he has made, in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to your God, as he has spoken. Or consider a prayer called the Alain, written at least 1,500 years ago for a Rosh Hashanah service, and now part of daily prayers. It is our duty to praise the Master of all, to ascribe greatness to the vulgar and evil creation, for he has not made us like the nations of the lands, and has not emplaced us like the families of the earth, for he has not assigned our portion like theirs, nor our lot like all their multitudes. For they bow to vanity and emptiness, emptiness and pray to a God which helps not. But we bend our knees, bow in our grateful before the King, who reigns over kings, the Holy One. He is our God, and there is none other. We are right, and they are all wrong. We are number one because we worship the one and only, and they can't even count that high. Many prayer books today, from Reformed to Orthodox, will live close defensive line. They pray to a God who is useless. But the chosenness is still there. We are not like them. It is embedded in many prayers and lessons. Our God, who chose us to give us his Torah, who gave us commandments, who loves us, who is jealous of us, and who organizes history about whether we follow, follow his instructions. Today's liberal Judaisms in multicultural democracies know how offensive the claim we're number one is when we are one of many groups. They've tried to reframe. They may print the Alain prayer in Hebrew, but have a nice English translation. They may say we are chosen not for special status, but for a mission to spread ethical monotheism or knowledge of the true God. My response to this reframing is that being chosen always meant that we had a mission. Where were our missionaries? Why did we reject potential converts three times to prove their devotion? Why keep our scripture in its original language? Centuries after Hebrew was no longer spoken. Let's be honest. It is tempting to be the chosen people. Just like the enjoy chanting, we're number one at a sporting event. Have you ever noticed that people say, we won, but they lost? We love being part of the winning team. Being special. Being uniquely unique. Even if it also means special attention, special criticism, or special chanting. Being the chosen people also meant that we believed suffering was our own fault. If only we had better followed the rules, we would have been protected. At the same time, maybe there was a survival value to chosenness in the medieval Jewish experience. Why else would you have stayed Jewish through expulsion and pogrom, except for a belief in your roots of superiority? The $64,000 question, which today would actually be the $578,000 question, <laughs> The big question is, can we stay Jewish today without saying we are number one? Does every group have to have a superlative about it 
to that meeting, relevance, and impact on its members. Must we define ourselves not only by who we are, but also by those we are better than? Recall the story about the Jewish man saved from a desert island. He had built two buildings. One was the synagogue he used, and one was the synagogue he would not set foot in. <laughs> our group, our congregation, is open. Our sense of Jewishness is non-exclusive. For us, you can be Jewish and, not just Jewish or. We accept that we have many group identities, and they can't all be number one all the time. We celebrate marriages and wonderful people outside of our group, and we do not demand conformity in dress or diet or fasting or obey. If we are still our own group, our own community, and we still feel connected to the larger group of the wider Jewish family, even if we disagree with some of them. Here's where I believe we need a balance among three values, all of which are important, all of which work for the individual and for the group. Pride, honesty, and humility. Pride. I am allowed to be proud of who I am, proud of what I do, proud of what I have learned and the good impact I have on the world around me. I can think that I am good without thinking that I am the best. Likewise, the Jewish people may be proud of the good values they have expressed through their culture, good deeds done by Jews for each other and for others in the past and today, and Jewish culture's capacity to grow and improve. Pride is needed. Honesty. I need to have the courage to evaluate myself honestly, to see where I fell short, to understand where I need to improve, to make good where I cause harm. Likewise, we need to understand Jewish life with clear eyes. Yes, we have been the victims of intolerance and oppression, and we have also been intolerant. We have possibly to do on our own, regardless of what others can do. If we criticize certain behavior and others, we should be willing to do the same for ourselves. Honesty is needed. Humility. I understand that it is not always about me. Sometimes the best thing I can do is listen and learn. Sometimes my concerns are less important. Jews are only 2% of the United States population and 0.2% of the world's population. The world does not revolve around us. And sometimes our needs may be less pressing than those of others. And we are not the best at anything. Humility is needed too. All three of these are important. We need pride in our group to maintain positive connections, not just guilt and inertia. We need honesty for a clear sense of our impact on others. And we need humility to not insist on always being number one. Over the many, many, many years I was in school, I always preferred grading that prize personal improvement or absolute knowledge over class ranking. I had no need to be number one. I wanted to learn more, to get better for myself and not for anything else. And that's how I understand my Jewishness and its highest, something that brings value and depth and wisdom to my life, independent of the relative position in the world of human culture. Is being part of the Jewish family the best possible way for me to be a good person? Is it the best possible way for me to raise a family, to be loving, to have dignity, to feel fulfilled as a human being? No one has ever conducted a double-blind study. But if the same person, Jewish and Baha'i, Korean Presbyterian, and atheist communist upbringings, to see which culture meshes the best with that person. Each cultural possibility 
and some values and some shortcomings. And some might find that another option or an element from another experience is a better fit than how they were raised. But there is no objective scale to determine which culture, which religious tradition is identity number one. You do not have to be number one to be good. After all, the core message of Yom Kippur is nobody's perfect. No one person is number one all the time. We all make mistakes. We all fall short of our own expectations and the commitment we make to others. We hurt people on purpose or by accident, and relationships are hard work. The rabbis imagine the Book of Life, a decision point when our rookies and our failures would be weighed in the balance. It would be judged whether we would be alive for the next year or die sometime when the year has begun. Pass or fail, live or die. But real life is more complicated. Real life is more real than books in the sky. Many of you know that my father died just before Rosh Hashanah began. I rushed to Michigan to see him two days before our first service. I love my father. But our relationship was complicated, as all of us are complicated. Sitting at his bedside, I told him whether he could hear it or not, that we do not love saints, we love real people. He was not the world's number one dad, and no one is. He was a good father in his way with his successes and his challenges, and I loved him for who he was. He is the only father I've ever had. And when his arm set comes around next Rosh Hashanah, just as when we take it for him from the ark, I will stand for his memory. And as respected of history, George Washington, the father of our country, might not have been the best president. As a slave owner, he was certainly not the best person. But he was still first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his country. And that's where it really counts. This podcast was produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.